Hey, long time no chat creeps. I'm sorry there's been such a long gap in between episodes. Be- literally right after I mentioned that I'd be back to a regular release schedule, so many things steamrolled into my life after that, and I've literally barely been able to come up for a breath. My roommate and I actually found a new place to move into, and we'd been living in the same place for eight years, and so we've been searching for really quite a while. And we finally found a place that we both could agree on. And once we found that place, everything kind of started to move at breakneck speed. So I was packing and cleaning and all of that nonsense, which meant my podcast gear was unavailable. And then COVID happened. (laughs) And what can I say about COVID and the pandemic that's happening that a million others probably have already talked about by now. So I'm a little bit behind that gun, but... The week we were scheduled to move to the new place was when the initial COVID lockdowns began happening in Los Angeles, where I am. So if you've never tried to move in the middle of a fucking pandemic with hardly any help, no services open, everyone panic buying all the essentials that you would normally need to move, like cleaning stuff and food, don't do it. Whatever you do, stay away from moving during a pandemic definitely would not recommend. It was super stressful. And so between all of that nonsense and trying to get a footing at work, it's been really crazy. So like I'm sure many of you know by now yourselves because you're living it just like everybody else in the world. So enough about that. We don't have to talk about that kind of stuff because today I wanted to take us away from all of that current wave of crazy chaos and chat just about a place here in LA and it has its own little history of chaos. Many of you listeners who are into horror and stories about hauntings and stuff like that are familiar with the supposedly haunted hotel that gets most of the limelight here in LA, and that's the Cecil Hotel. But before I had even heard about the Cecil, I was intrigued by the crazy stories and that goings on at Greystone Mansion. And for those of you who don't know, the Greystone Mansion is this huge estate on Loma Vista Drive in Beverly Hills. And these days, it's mostly used as an event space for weddings, and a lot of films have been made there, actually. And cool little fact, if you didn't already know, that the interior of the mansion was used as the Big Lebowski's home and office in that movie, and it was also used in Death Becomes Her. So it's a pretty iconic place, even if you don't quite know it by name. So you can also tour the grounds and take photos there most days, but... The history of the place kind of starts out like an old-school murder mystery plot. So bear with me a little bit because I'm gonna give you a little bit of a history lesson, so don't get too bored, but I I like to know the backstories and stuff like that of all of these old creepy places, so it's important to the story. So the mansion was built by Edward Lawrence Doheny, and Edward was originally born in Wisconsin, but in 1892, he and his friend Charles Canfield headed to Los Angeles for, you know, the same reason anybody back in that time moved west, and that was to find gold or oil. They ended up actually being the first people to discover oil in Los Angeles and later discovered large oil deposits in Mexico, which combined with what they had found in LA made them the largest producers of oil in the world at the time. And that also inevitably made them filthy rich. While in a way it had seemed that his luck was kind of on the rise and everything was going great, it really wasn't because this is when things took a really weird dark turn for Edward because at this time he and his wife divorced and Edward gained custody of their son Ned, which 
was really weird at the time because even now mothers mostly get custody of their kids which is a completely different conversation for another day but he got custody and his wife lost everything and they were deeply religious catholic individuals so not only did she lose her son and the money she also took a pretty big blow to her reputation so this kind of sent her in a tailspin and she ended up committing suicide by drinking battery fluid already there's some weird dark cloud hanging over this family but fast forward to the mid-20s and Edward had become a very powerful man politically, and he used that power to kind of start to mingle with national political leaders. And that included presidents, and one president whose administration was affected really closely by Doheny was Warren G. Harding. President Harding at the time had a secretary of the interior named Albert Fall, and he was a very close friend of Mr. Doheny, and in fact, Mr. Doheny gave him $100,000 to help him along. and. In today's money, that is equal to about $10 million. In return, Secretary Fall made it possible for Mr. Doheny to secure oil drilling rights on a large deposit of oil on federally owned land, particularly one very rich spot, which was called the Teapot Dome, because it was huge and it was shaped like a teapot. The exchange of this money actually became the greatest political scandal in American history and stayed that way until Watergate. Albert Fall was completely disgraced because he had taken that bribe money and he went to jail. But Mr. Doheny escaped prison, probably because he had a lot of money, is my guess. But his son Ned and Ned's childhood friend were still kind of in the line of fire for possible incarceration because, as it turned out, the $100,000 bribe was actually delivered in a black suitcase. I mean, of course, it was a black suitcase by Ned and he was in his late 20s by this point and his boyhood friend Hugh Plunkett came along to help him I guess hand over the money. That put them in the line of fire to fall for their father. So keep that in mind as the story progresses because it's a little bit of a nugget of information. So years later when Edward's son Ned married he gave the land that Greystone Manor is built on as a wedding present to him and his new bride. Construction then began on Greystone Mansion in February 15th, 1927, and although Ned and his wife Lucy and their five children moved into the residence in September of 1928, it took them three more years to complete, and all in all, it costed over $3 million, which, adjusted for our times, would be equivalent to around $47 million. So to say that they were wealthy is a complete understatement. And the place was huge. Back then, the house included stables and kennels, tennis courts, its own fire station, a gatehouse, swimming pool, pavilion, greenhouse, its own lake, waterfalls, all of that stuff. So the scene in the backstory is basically set here, and you can imagine what it was like to be there. And this is where shit starts to get weird really fast. On the evening of February 16th, 1929, exactly two years after construction began and only five months after the family had moved in, Hugh Plunkett, again Ned's childhood friend who had helped him give over this bribe money, made his way to Greystone Mansion and let himself in with a key. So he had a key because he had stayed there plenty of times, he works for them, he's kind of in and out, again Ned's best friend, so this isn't abnormal. Ned's wife, Lucy, was sitting up in the library reading when he arrived, and she didn't think that anything was out of the ordinary because, again, he was his friend, and 
He's there all the time. So Hugh made his way to Greystone's many spare bedrooms where he called Ned and asked him if they could meet. They met in a room and Ned locked the door behind him. So as she was reading her magazines, around 11 o'clock, she was reported to have heard a gunshot. According to press accounts, she didn't look for the source of the gunshot and she didn't immediately call the police, which is weird already, but instead she chose to call the family doctor. And when he arrived, he and Lucy were making their way toward the room when Hugh emerged from the bedroom in a state of anguish and with a gun in his hand. Upon seeing the family doctor, whom they knew each other, so it wasn't a stranger, he ran back into the room and slammed the door, whereupon the doctor and Lucy later claimed that they had heard another gunshot. Mind you, this, according to the official story, occurred more than 20 minutes after Lucy had heard the first gunshot. After desperately trying to kind of work to get the door open, the doctor and Lucy finally succeeded and found both men laying dead on the floor. But the very odd thing is, while this seems kind of like the -the run-of-the-mill murder-suicide at the hands of a disgruntled employee and all of that because of maybe he was going to be taking the fall for Ned and his dad, the evidence seemed to point to a much more complex explanation for what happened that night. See, because Lucy, she says that she and the doctor had found the bodies around midnight, but for some reason the police weren't called until 2 in the morning. So that's two hours of the body, kind of just whatever they were doing to them. Like, what were you guys doing? I have no idea what they were doing to them. But in addition to that, during those hours before the police were called, several of Lucy's relatives who lived nearby, when I say nearby, it's not like on the property. They didn't hear these gunshots, but they had shown up out of the blue at the house, supposedly, which, I mean, someone had to have called them. And why would you call your family before you called the police? I don't know. But... That's what happened there. But when the police finally did arrive, they found that the bodies had been moved and that the statements of the witnesses to them seemed rehearsed. The coroner also determined that Hugh, the alleged murderer at this point, had been found face down with a cigarette in his hand and underneath him. And he was positioned just outside the bedroom door. And that's fishy because if you remember... Lucy and the doctor said that he had went back into the room and closed the door behind him when the gunshot was heard. So already things aren't adding up. (laughs) So in addition to that, it was determined that the shot that had killed Hugh had been a shot in the back from the short distance. So obviously somebody who had committed suicide can't shoot themselves in the back. And Ned was on the floor in the bedroom in an overturned chair and an empty glass of whiskey nearby as if he had had the glass in his hand. He also had a bullet wound to his head, but it was obviously at very close range because there was still gunpowder on his forehead. When questioned about this, Lucy claimed that the bodies were moved because the doctor had tried to revive both men. But although the police had their suspicions, again, it was the late 20s and these people had tons of money and were very influential. And the forensics as we know it weren't even a tiny blip on the radar as they are now. So after just two days, of a joke of an investigation, the coroner ruled that the case is a murder-suicide and blamed Hugh Plunkett for temporarily going insane. There's a lot of speculation really about what could have happened that night and from, you know, Hugh freaking out because he was going to go to prison to just having a spat or whatever, but the most popular explanation that kind of permeates the story is that Ned and Hugh were romantically involved and either out of jealousy or anger 
or embarrassment, Lucy killed them both. Either way, the case was closed, but the craziness of Greystone Mansion doesn't stop there. A little more than a year later, almost to the day, Lucy married a man named Lee Batson. Lee was a stockbroker whom she had known when her husband Ed was still alive, and it was rumored that this marriage was kind of more of something of convenience for Lucy because she needed someone to help raise her five kids and take care of the estate, and it was great for Lee because he wanted to marry into money. And Lee was said to be kind of an eccentric guy who loved hunting, and he loved that so much that he actually had a room in front of the house where he and his friends would lean off the balcony and actually shoot wildlife and birds below and then use the adjoining kitchen to clean their kills. And this kind of picture in my mind is so 1920s to me that it makes me laugh. I can just imagine some random guy leaning over this huge estate balcony and just shooting random little squirrels and things like that. It's absurd. Anyways, during this time, of being married, Lee had begun kind of taking advantage of and exploiting the women who worked on the grounds. And he did so with such reckless abandon, allegedly, that eventually three of these women also supposedly quote-unquote committed suicide. There's not a whole lot of information about those I looked, but there's an ID episode, I believe, and I don't remember what the show is called, but they kind of go into that a little bit more. I'll put it on the website, the name of the episode, when I find it. Later, in 1936, Lucy's young daughter had her friends over for a sleepover like normal kids do in her part of the mansion. Sometime during the night, one of the friends fell out of the bedroom window to her death. So (laughs) this mansion is just claiming lives left and right. And I don't know if it's the family or if it's the mansion or if it's just horrible luck. But there's one other death that actually has ties to Greystone as well. And although it didn't happen directly on the grounds, it happened right in front of the gates. Approximately the 20th of February, 1992, the body of 18-year-old Justin Zaitsov, I hope I'm saying that right. If I'm not, let me let me know. Um, he's the son of a Malibu City councilwoman, was found in the trunk of his gray BMW, which was parked at the main entrance of the manor and he had been shot in what turned out to be an apparent murder-for-hire plot because he had owed someone money, and he was a well-to-do kid, and someone just decided to murder him and leave him right outside of Greystone Mansion. As far as I can tell, that was the last death on the grounds of Greystone Mansion, but I'm not sure what the hell is up with this place that attracted such horrible things to happen there, especially with the incidences happening in February, oddly. But because of these tragedies, there's ghost stories about the mansion, and witnesses have seen a ghost of a man wearing a black suit and a pork pie hat on the main staircase, and others have seen phantom butlers and cooks and random service workers haunting around the halls. But the spirit that's the most infamous that has the most sightings is that of a woman who is often seen lingering floating in the halls. Apparently, every time she appears, there's an unmistakable scent of lilac perfume. But my favorite encounter, though, was from Nicholas Hurtnick. Hurtnick was a designer who was renovating Greystone Mansion a while back, and he was in the room where the Doheny murder had occurred. He had removed the paintings in order to spackle the holes where the picture nails had made in the walls. He stated that, quote, 
I was going around the room systematically when I went to rub the spackle off my finger and noticed there was blood on it. I didn't think that I had scratched it, so I looked closer and there was no cut. I looked up and noticed that suddenly the walls were bleeding. I looked to my left where there were three nails that had been pulled out and the blood from those holes was running five to six inches down the wall. I was like, holy shit, and I ran out of the room and brought back a bunch of people. We got pictures and then it just faded away. It faded away, end quote. Yeah, it's pretty safe to say that this place is kind of eerie. I've gone to the grounds, but I haven't done the interior tour yet and most likely won't be able to for a while now since we're on lockdown, but it's on my list of things to do so that I can kind of snoop around for myself and see what kind of vibes are there or take pictures or whatever, hopefully see something crazy. But that's it for this episode. Um, I'm a little bit more settled in now and back to normal-ish as normal as things can be right now and I'm going to kind of shoot for releasing more than one episode a week. I don't want to speak too soon, knock on wood, but my thought is really most likely it's going to be a full episode like this one and then a mini little extra credit type of thing where I'm mostly going to just chat about more random horror related things like book and movie reviews or convention tidbits and really just kind of miscellaneous odds and ends shit that wouldn't fit an entire episode in and of itself and it's not so full of research so I can kind of just bullshit around with you guys and kind of just talk about cool things in a more casual way because why the hell not we're all in quarantine so I mean we might as well kind of keep ourselves busy so keep your eyes and ears out for those and if you have anything that you want to hear about either in regards to full episodes or small banter episodes let me know it's cool just let me know I have a whole lineup of full-length episode ideas but like the little mini ones I'm not quite sure yet so I'm all ears I also might start live streaming some of the full-length episodes I'm thinking about doing it via Twitch just because I already have a Twitch account. Um, I've never used it because I'm a bit camera shy, so I haven't quite decided yet. We'll see. But if you guys are interested, let me know. But more importantly, if you guys need more horror-related stuff while you're kind of safe at home and bored and tired of all of the other shit, make sure to go and head to slasher.tv slash 50 things. The site has a list of amazing stuff and my humble little podcast here included for horror lovers to kind of just check out while hunkered down and the list is constantly growing and being added to and it's just full of really cool shit to discover from podcasts to music to films, whatever you feel like checking out and no, this is not a sponsored thing. I'm not paid to say this. It's seriously just a really cool little resource that I wanted to let you guys know about from my favorite little community at Slasher and if you know we all get bored of watching Netflix and Amazon and you're looking just for something kind of out of the ordinary to check out so again slasher.tv slash 50 things definitely check it out but let me know what you think of this episode or any ideas or any cool experiences you had at Graystone Mansion via Instagram Facebook or Twitter at Creep Academy Cast. Or you guys can always email me at creepacademypod at gmail.com. Until next time, guys, stay creepy. Creepy.